our next topic or for our next speaker, we actually have Michael Baran, who holds a PhD in biochemistry and an MBA. He's partner at Pfizer Ventures and is also the executive director for external science, innovation, and worldwide R&D at Pfizer. Mike has responsibility for growing venture investment transactions and managing equity investments aligned with future directions of Pfizer. He's actually also like now he might be the first pharma executive who's actually on Discord. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure about that, but I just uh, claim that now. And right. uh, he will talk about creative destruction of venture capital, DAOs, longevity, a role for pharma. Michael, uh, glad you're here and uh, the floor is yours. Okay, thanks, Max. And um, let's see if I can share my screen here. It would be embarrassing after that intro if this became a problem. <laughs> How are we looking? Good? Yes, fantastic. Good. Okay, and we have uh, 20 minutes, right? And then five of Q&A. So I'll, I'll try to be done at 12.10 um, my time. Sounds good. Okay, we can, we'll be quick here. <clears throat> and we have to be quick because I'm relatively new to the space. But I think it'll be interesting for some of you that have been here longer uh, to get some of the kind of preliminary thoughts here from, from a newcomer. And uh, also maybe a bit of a peek into kind of what Pfizer is thinking here and why we're here. And so this, this isn't going to be a uh, very deep scientific talk like we like most of the talks so far this morning. I've had the chance to see most of them. Um, more, we'll, we'll stick to the high level. And I want to have uh, two parts to the discussion. The first few slides will just cover um, DSI in general and how we view that through the big pharma lens. And then I'll talk a little bit about longevity and kind of uh, how we see that out of Pfizer at the moment. Um, so the first part, right? Creative destruction of venture capital. That is a uh, provocative title, and it's meant to be. Uh, if you break it down, I mean, it's basically saying destruction of venture capital, right? We're going to take apart. I mean, venture capital is a, is a core kind of piece of how we finance biotech today, and and the title is suggesting we're going to turn that upside down on its head, but in a creative way. Um, that's a little extreme, but I think the Dow model really is getting at that. Maybe not to destroy venture capital, but to complement it and maybe eventually one day um, be a true competitor. And so this slide here um, really speaks to this concept of decentralization. I mean, anyone that's on the Vita Dow symposium call here knows what decentralization is. Uh, I use this slide in Pfizer where I often have to educate a little bit more. Uh, but the idea is that this, this is not something new, like this has been going on actually for almost 30 years, right? And I, I think it's fun to learn from other industries. And um, if I'll just run through this here just to kind of um, bring to life some of these examples that most of you are already familiar with, but it's still uh, interesting to you know take a, a stride through uh, history here. So if you go back to the 90s, right, um, we started with shopping, pretty centralized process back then. You know, if you want to sell something, um, even in a mom and pop's shop, right, like you're going through like one point of contact there to get placement, product placement in the store. Up through retail, right? You have buyers, right? Working for big department stores. E-commerce totally destroys that, right? Um, that the, the internet model is flat, right? Like anybody can join, you show up, you spin up a website and you're up and running. Massive um, segment of uh, growth, right? An economy. Uh, move to the 2000s, you know, you see media kind of getting decentralized um, prior to Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Google, right? You really had to um, either uh, get interviewed by a reporter and be on, on the TV or, or a newspaper or a magazine, something like that. Um, but really with these, you know, social media tools, any of us really can just, you know, buy a microphone and, uh, you know, start an account and you're, you're a media talking head. Uh, and again, this is, this is a huge um, 
economic growth coming out of these companies. I mean, this is a big tech, basically, which is probably the biggest industry in the world at the moment, if not one of them outside of uh, maybe energy. Uh, more recently, right, we see this uh, use cases expanding into um, real estate with Airbnb and, and taxis with Uber. And then um, most recently, uh, and kind of what, what brings me here is um, with Web3 and, and crypto and specifically Ethereum, but also a little bit of others, um, you know, we see this decentralization in uh, retail finance and to some extent in art. I'm not sure how much it is anymore. We'll find out how that plays out. But uh, certainly in um, uh, DeFi, decentralized finance, um, there is something there that seems as if it's going to sustain, you know, beyond regulation. And so, you know, when I learned about this in the 2020s, 2021 timeframe, um, I, I immediately began thinking, um, wow, DeFi is, is pretty cool, right? Like this is revolutionary, even blockchain, like the, the concept of it by itself. This is like the internet in the 1990s type technology. This could really change the way, you know, the world works. Um, seems to be working in the finance space. How can we expand this into biotech? And that's when I discovered BetaDAO, probably a few months after the um, uh, token offering. Um, but the rest has really been been history. And um, that brings me to my next slide. Uh, the future of venture capital will be decentralized. So again, not a term that I came up with. Uh, it comes from a fellow named Joseph Schumpter here who coined this word in 1942. But it's a, the basic thinking is that um, in capitalism, you'll always trend towards um, efficiency or simplicity. And it's funny because, you know, decentralization, as I describe it, you're flattening, you know, decision making, removing complexity. But at the same time, without order, things can get chaotic. So it's kind of like a, a managed chaos, but uh, decentralized managed chaos. That's a lot of um, contradict contradicting words in one sentence, but um, it is a new model but regardless. And it's something that um, I'm excited about. And I think it's a great way to kind of get voices to the table that otherwise um, can, can be overlooked in the traditional, you know, hierarchical way that we um, conduct early stage science and late stage science. Okay, and so within Pfizer, this is how we kind of see the, the Dow model uh, fitting in. Um, so again, going back to the 2010s in the bottom left, the way that we partnered um, and advanced uh, early stage science outside the worlds of Pfizer was, um, you know, a lot of the traditional bread and butter things that have been around for a long time, right? Licensing, M&A, we buy companies, we do research collaborations. We started kind of, uh, you know, working with, uh, started our own incubator, started, you know, venture capital group. Uh, this concept of open innovation popped up around 2010, where you have uh, pharma working alongside academics doing joint discovery, joint drug discovery together. Uh, fast forward a little bit into the 2015 time frame here. Uh, again, we expanded our venture capital groups. We started working in public-private partnerships. There's a huge one in Europe called the IMI, uh, where it's a number of pharma companies working with academia uh, to solve a number of different problems in drug discovery, and all of the output is um, uh, public. And then uh, we went on to kind of, you know, figure out ways to, you know, innovate partnering in uh, geography-specific ways and ways that we call ITENs, which are these academic networks that we form. So, I mean, the takeaway here is we're always trying to innovate in the way that we interact with the world outside of, of pharma. And so, you know, DSI, decentralized science, the DAO construct, was already up and running and off the ground, you know, before um, uh, DSI started, right? I mean, the tech 
Web3 world had, had already had a kind of a growing community of DAOs. And so it only makes sense, you know, for us to try to get in the game here. And Max, I'm happy you said I'm the first pharma uh, executive on uh, Discord because uh, this is one of my goals, actually, was to have Pfizer be, um, you know, we try to say that we're an innovative science company. And I think it's important to put a stake in the ground and try to be, um, you know, the first pharma company that's really looking to explore the Dow model. And uh, I think everyone's seen this chart here from Ultra Rare. Um, it just keeps growing, right? Every time they put out a new version of this. When Vita Dow first uh, hit the scene, there's maybe one or two icons on here. And now I, don't, I haven't counted them, but there looks like there's about 50 on here. Uh, so great momentum. I mean, Molecule closed their um, uh, traditional venture round, right? Uh, recently, it's just um, a, a lot of great momentum here and I'm excited to, to see it continue. And then also, I'll just last point here, uh, just to for all of us to pat ourselves on the back a little bit. Um, it's not like this is just a small niche community. Maybe it is to some extent, um, but I mean, there's uh, I, there's publications in Nature that are starting to talk about uh, DSI, and you know, with Pfizer getting involved here, I mean, Endpoints picked it up, Biospace picked it up, lots of chatter on Twitter I was seeing. So um, this is only the beginning, and I think uh, as I'll hit on in a little bit. Once we deliver the first kind of value inflection point out of uh, DSI, uh, the sky's really the limit. So we'll come to that in a moment. But first, um, I'll shift gears here uh, and just give a few thoughts on uh, longevity and um, how we see it and how I've started to, to, to begin to think about this. Again, I'm a newcomer to this. You know, I operate in the traditional biotech world, um, and it's been it's been. Uh, a lot of fun actually meeting people and, and learning uh, about different business models, right? I was listening very closely today to, to all of the talks. Uh, it definitely plays into my thinking. So within Pfizer, you know, this is kind of what we're interested in. Before we even talk about longevity, you won't see longevity show up um, at this moment in our um, areas of interest. And this may be slightly dated, but, um, you know, on the top row there, the therapeutic areas that we play in uh, is not. So we have five therapeutic areas of interest rare disease, oncology, inflammation, what we call internal medicine, um, and obviously vaccines, right? Now, underneath that, we typically have uh, three or four disease areas uh, that we prioritize. You can't do everything, right? Um, and so those are listed, and I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna run through those in detail. Um, underneath that, it gets even more nuanced, right? So like this is the view that we share with the external world and uh, we encourage people that are working in these areas to reach out to us. Uh, if you're not working in one of these areas, it's it's likely going to be a short conversation. So it's, um, it's, it's good always, it's good practice in any case. If you're talking to pharma, if you're talking to venture capital investors, understand, you know, their focus areas and, and uh, you know, don't approach them, right? If, if they're not interested in the space you're working in. But anyway, underneath these, disease areas, it becomes a little bit more nuanced and it's even more fluid of a list. Uh, there are specific uh, targets and mechanisms and modalities that are um, that, that are of interest or off interest. And, you know, like I said, that, that, that is a little bit dynamic. And so we typically don't put that out there. Um, and then on the bottom, you see some of the kind of uh, emerging science areas, we call them, uh, that we're interested in. So repeat expansion diseases and rare disease. These are, you know, genetic repeats that drive phenotype uh, DNA damage response, synthetic lethality, I think that shows up in the longevity space, certainly senescence. Uh, Pfizer has a huge oncology product, uh, Ibrantz, palpocyclib, small molecule. Uh, it's a CDK4-6 inhibitor, so um, 
you know, the other CDKs are of interest, but there's, you know, there's definitely more to senescence than the cell cycle targets. Um, AI machine learning, early days here it, on the research side, I think there's good use case in the, in the clinical side, um, but definitely a lot going on in the research side and, and we're interested there as well. And then, you know, RNA therapeutics, you know, building beyond COVID vaccines, uh, delivery systems that can get to specific tissue types and deliver uh, either RNA or DNA or CRISPR systems. Uh, that's one of my most interesting areas at the moment um, where I take a, an active role and have a, a bunch of investments in that space through Pfizer Ventures. Okay, so that's what we're interested in. Again, you haven't seen longevity yet. We're going to be, begin to start talking about longevity a little bit more. I don't know if it's going to show up in the near term as its own column on this slide necessarily, but I think you know, if you look at a lot of these diseases on here, many of them uh, can be uh, wrapped under the longevity umbrella. And that's kind of the, the message. That's what the message is going to be at the moment, is that longevity is of interest. And I think we have to think about how we're going to bridge this gap from traditional drug discovery um, into, um, you know, into longevity-focused studies, like um, biomarker-based studies or even ultimately uh, extension of life. Okay. So now I have a few, let me quick time check. Okay, 10 minutes. So I have a, a few slides here I hijacked from um, the longevity technology uh, annual report. And um, I wanna share them because it'll, it'll, it'll build into my thinking of kind of um, where I see the kind of direct path forward uh, between bridging longevity science into pharma. And then it's drugs that help patients and ultimately fuel uh, the longevity-based studies that I think we're all looking for here. So. Um, so this is a breakdown that they pulled together of um, all of the compounds in the clinic that are uh, associated with longevity or come from longevity companies. And uh, they categorize them on the right by uh, the different hallmarks of longevity, right? And so these, these, this is like a different class of science than um, you know, you'll see on my Pfizer slide, right? And um, and and that is you know that is what it is. It's just uh, it's it's um, but it's more of like a nomenclature thing because if I flip forward, and you pull out of clinicaltrials.gov, uh, the disease areas that those same studies map to, I mean these this is the, the 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 big pharma language right of the diseases that we study that have you know agreed upon endpoints with FDA, and a clear path to therapeutic using you know current uh, clinical development. So AMD. Dementia, obesity, NASH, Parkinson's, SMA, um, and so you can click. You quickly see where I'm going, right? It's this uh, stepping stone model. I think Sebastian was getting at earlier, um, where, you, where the clearest path forward at the moment is um, you pick uh, projects where you have a clear path forward with traditionally defined uh, discovery pathway, and then in parallel, you can you can run your biomarker studies or other longevity-based studies. I, I, I paused for a moment because um, I wanted to say like a extension of life-based study, but I, I just don't know how that can be done in parallel. It's just a, a longer uh, process. So, but I'm interested to learn more about this and, and how we can do this. And I think it's basically the Cambrian model as well is to do just what I described, you know, assemble a portfolio of uh, molecules that have applicability both in, in longevity aging, but in some of the more established pathways get them financed around um, the established pathways, but be sure to commit capital to uh, advance the longevity studies as well and stay committed to that. So I, I see that actually as probably the, um, the most clear path forward at the moment. 
Um, and again, this slide just speaks to kind of some of the the um, different areas of longevity and, and how it it um, spans outside of just therapeutics. I mean, I'm I just, I'm speaking solely about therapeutics uh, that can be reimbursed, you know, in the payer based system. But clearly, I've learned uh, in my short time with BetaDAO, uh, we see a lot more opportunities beyond that. Um, you know, consumer based biomarker type products. I mean. Uh, potential, um, you know, in the food and beverage industry to apply, you know, longevity based, maybe supplement type uh, uh, molecules or innovations. Uh, it's not just therapeutics. That just happens to be where my interest plays in, because, you know, obviously I have the Pfizer logo behind my head here. Um, so we'll see how that plays out. And then I, I, I pulled together here a handful out of the um, longevity tech uh, annual report. These are kind of some of the, um, um, what would you call them? Like uh, success stories, I guess, over the past few years that that they highlighted. And I put uh, Capsida and Cambrian on the top because they both raised a significant amount of capital. Um, and they're both doing what I just described, right? The stepping stone model. And so if you just follow the money and you follow where the money comes from, which I list uh, with the icons of the investors underneath there, these are all you know, highly established uh, blue chip investors. On the left, certainly, is like my crowd, right? Uh, they, these are pharma companies or, um, you know, traditional biotech investors. Uh, the money is, is flowing today into the stepping stone model. I think it's just starting to flow beyond that. And on the bottom here, um, I have some of those in blue. I mean, these are still success stories, right? Uh, if you're raising millions of dollars or billions, in the case of Altos, you're, you're doing pretty good, right? And so, um, yeah, I mean, money's flowing into this place, capital's flowing in, and uh, I think um, we still have to think about how we how we translate this in, into products. Okay, so last slide here, and right on time, I think I have two minutes left. Uh, so what's the path forward look like for me? Um, the path to 2030 and beyond. Uh, so here, here we have on the left where we are today, last year and this year, right, emergence. So we have the arrival of the IP NFT, which we didn't even really talk about today, but I'm sure most are familiar. Molecule VitaDAO hits the scene. I think over the next few years, you'll see a lot more DSI uh, DAOs pop up. Uh, but then once you get out to 26, 28, uh, the rubber has to hit the road, right? Because uh, capital is not free. And if you don't deliver a return, it's gonna go somewhere else. And so I think, you know, by the time we get out to 26, 28, we need to have a win here. And so what does a win look like? Uh, to me, it's um, either something that VitaDAO or one of the other DAOs finances goes on to attract traditional venture capital and advances via that route. Um, or there's just some you know, novel event that's never happened yet in history. Like um, I was talking to Tyler a few weeks ago and he, he was uh, mentioning something around potentially running a clinical trial, a small investigator-led clinical trial out of a DAO. I mean, that would that would make headlines if that happened. And I think that would contribute to just validating DSI as a, a really a valid mechanism for funding early stage um, R&D. And then moving beyond that, once we have validation, that's when things get really interesting, I think, because you know there's a number of, I'd say right now, there's mainly, at least in DSI, right? It's mainly like, uh, mainly Web3 based investors that dabble in, in biotech. I mean, I'm sure there's some, uh, exceptions, but that's kind of how I see the main audience. 
And I think the exit for a lot of that crowd will be similar to um, the Web3 model, where it's kind of like once you see some token appreciation, it's, it's a good time to take some capital off the table. Um, but once we get to the point where we do see that token appreciation, it's going to be because something good happened, like this val validation event happens. And once that happens, I see this just attracting um, more traditional venture capital, more pharma investment. Um, and really, I would say now kind of the treasury, the average treasury you can kind of build in a, in a DAO is, is probably, you know, around, you know, something like 20 to 30, 10 to $30 million, something like that. I mean, a real venture capital fund, traditional venture capital fund, where you have to take companies through phase one, sometimes two, uh, you need like a hundred million dollar treasury for that. And uh, we're not there yet. And that's why the perfect place for the DSI model, in my opinion, at the moment is this value of death between academia and um, and beyond academia to maybe the venture capital model. Um, but once we hit a win here, it's not hard to really envision uh, the Dow model growing and um, seeing the first $100 million treasury sitting out there. And once you have a $100 million treasury, you're a venture fund and you're gonna be competing with venture funds for deal flow. So that is uh, super exciting and um, I'm excited to see how this all plays out. So with, with that, I'll take uh, any questions anyone might have. Fantastic, thank you, Mike. And uh, I really like this last slide, um, how it's leading up like to this uh, to this explosion yeah. and uh, the seeing is like very nice. But when you talk among your peers in Big Pharma, are you like crazy down, Mike? or how do those uh, conversations usually go? Um, yeah. how, how receptive are people like in the big big corporate pharma world to that? Yeah, I'd say it's mixed. I'd say it's mixed. Uh, there's some people that are, this is crazy down, Mike. But to be honest, I think most people are are more intrigued, you know, and I, I just are like, you know, this sounds crazy, but I think we need to explore this. And it, and it's, it's also interesting because when I'm amongst my venture uh, colleagues, right? Not just from Pfizer, but from, you know, all, you know, I interact, I spend more of my time probably with other VCs that finance biotech rather than inside the walls of Pfizer. Um, you know, a lot of the investments we do are sizable, especially today, like $7,500 million rounds. Somehow we always wind up talking about DSI. And so I think people are interested. And, um, but I think the path to profitability um, or the investment thesis, I should say, for a private investor is still being defined. And uh, I think we need one of those validating events to really get you know, good traction. So what's like the main objection you get from your colleagues? Well, if people don't understand blockchain. They think it's uh, you know, a scam. Why don't you build this outside of crypto? You, why, why, why crypto? You can, you can do this outside of Ethereum, uh, that kind of stuff. So it's you know, there was also question, some questions about like, um, quality of science. Uh, but I think that's all quickly, you know, put to bed. I mean, we have a great group of, of people involved in DSI uh, across not just science, but I mean, there's legal innovation going on here. There's financial innovation going on here. It's really like, uh, it's a lot of fun actually for me because I feel like we're writing the book. It's like doing your PhD, right? You have to write the next chapter and we're doing that across, you know, multiple industries here to make this work. Oh, I think you got muted. Oh, sorry, I said Dr. Marilyn had a question. I just gave her, gave talking permission. Yeah. It might not be working. 
Um, then actually there's some questions from Sebastian. Um, how many pharma colleagues are you aware of, uh, are aware of the long biofield? How many are pushing to work on it within pharma? Yeah, I think, I think uh, it's a, we're at a transition point here where there's a lot of, a lot of momentum, you know, like when, company like Altos comes and raises 3 billion, you know, people recognize that quickly, but I think there's still a lot of questions, but um, you know, it's, it's a serious, I can't speak for the other pharma so much, but it's a serious discussion with inside pharma. And um, I think many of you were at this longevity conference, uh, Morton SK organized in uh, Copenhagen a few weeks ago. And you heard uh, Michael Ringel from Boston Consulting speaking there. Obviously BCG works with all the big pharma groups. So, you know, it's not a large stretch to imagine that uh, if you have the ear of the management consulting community, you probably also have the ear of, uh, you know, big pharma as well. So we'll see where it goes. Perfect, cool. Let's try again if Dr. Marilyn can talk or not. If not, then I think we'll wrap it up. And um, okay. thank you, Mike and uh, Eleanor. Back to you. Great, thanks. Thank you, Mike, and thanks, Max.